My name is Jason, and you're listening to the Farming Eternal Podcast, the number one eternal podcast. Welcome to Farming Eternal, an eternal podcast for farmers, hosted by me, Patrick, or Padumaro, Ruben, or Barefoot Farmer, and Ben, also known as Ben Grayshire, on the data mining team. It's episode 27. For those of you tuning in for the first time, we are a draft-focused podcast. Our goal is to help you and me, mostly me, get better at draft. We get into the nitty-gritty of the drafting process with a little meta-analysis and play tips thrown in. This week, we have another action-packed show. We're going to discuss how our draft week went. We have a couple more announcements. Listener of the week, card of the week. We're going to do our abbreviated seven-win breakdown as we keep getting uh, more and more lists for the new format. But you guys have been doing a great job with all the lists we've been getting. We're going to talk about some more quadrant theory. And then Ben is going to explain a deck that he's been having a lot of success with in this new format, a multicolor mid-range. And then we're going to review a draft that he did um, this past week, showing how he got into that deck. So to start with, Ben, um, how has your draft week been? First off, thank you for having me again, Patrick. This is great. Uh, the draft week has just been pretty crazy. I, I didn't seven runs this first week and four of them were seven wins so that's a pretty excellent ratio and i've been doing just a ton of multicolor drafting four color five color uh, and i've been having a, a lot of success with it so the, the, the streaming of the drafts of it has just been going great how about you i've also been having a really excellent uh week i've only done two drafts so far but they've both gone seven wins, wow. and the two and the two decks were pretty polar opposite. My first draft of the format really felt like a train wreck. It had a, a lot of bad cards, which if you check out the Discord, you could see a link to it and see just how many bad cards it had. And in fact, it had so many bad cards, I needed 46 cards to fit them all in to the deck. <laughs> but it managed to get me seven wins. And then I just drafted the best deck of my life, the the next draft, where the pack generator was just handing me amazing pack after amazing pack. And we actually, the Discord as a whole, sort of drafted that deck together. I mean, I say that, but mostly the draft sort of drafted itself. But it was a lot of fun as we all just like watched in awe as I kept opening on-color uncommon bomb after on-color uncommon bomb. So that was pretty fun. But it does. It has made me feel pretty good about this format, and and so I'm feeling pretty good going into this episode in the next couple of weeks. I think I've just been liking this format quite a lot. This is really a format for me, and it's it's delivering so far. All right. So the announcements this week. First off, you know, last week we announced that we finally started a Patreon, and so the big announcement this week is we already have two patrons who joined. So at first, I'd like to thank. James and Raven Dragon for joining the Patreon. Uh, you both are awesome and we appreciate the sport so much. And also, and this was going to be an announcement, but thanks to James and Raven Dragon, we've already smashed through our first Patreon goal before we even announced it. And none of you know this because we hadn't announced it, but Ben is now forced to change his stream title and admit some association with the Farming Eternal podcast in it. And just yes. between you and me, listeners, he's been using the same stream title for months now, so it's about time. So I'm glad you did it. I'll be doing a stream after this recording as well, so we'll get to show off the new stream title. 
So if uh, you would like us to help reach our next unannounced goal, you can um, check out the Patreon at patreon.com slash farming eternal and sign up. We have a couple few cool rewards and we have a few more rewards in the pipeline and you get a sweet discord color flare, which I've decided is purple. So if you want to be purple in discord, you can just sign up right there starting today. Thank you to our two patrons, James and Raven dragon. Thanks a lot guys. It means a lot that people are willing to put uh, some of their own money towards something that we're providing and is just very impactful. I think. So then, uh, Ben, would you like to talk about the tournament that we announced last week? Yeah, so there was a little bit of confusion on the start date. So it, uh, the deck lists need to be submitted to the farmingeternal at gmail.com uh, email address by Friday, August 16th. Uh, and then the tournament will start for the next, the following day and, and go until two weekends have passed. So we're getting closer to the deadline by the time this episode releases. We'll be pretty pretty close to the deadline. And so get your lists in. Be part of this. Should be pretty cool. Uh, get a chance to, to run, run back some 6.0 draft decks that did really well and see how well they do against uh, other high-level competition inside the Farming Eternal. So now moving on to Listener of the Week. The Listener of the Week this week is Camomilk. Uh, Milk joined our Discord channel this week and um, posted a a Python script that he wrote to help him organize uh, draft screenshots. So I think it scans your your screenshot folder and it shrinks down all the image sizes, makes them into JPEGs so they're a little smaller to handle, and organizes them. And so he uses that to um, organize all of his draft screenshots into sort of a single sort of unified thing. So that was really cool of him to post a link to the script he's using. And I think it would be really helpful for, because we always accept sort of user user drafts for us to review on the podcast. So this is uh, maybe a helpful tool if you have a draft that you would like to screenshot up and then submit it into us. So thank you, Camomilk, for joining the Discord for posting this script and for participating. We appreciate it. So I think it is very important that people review their own drafts that they do. I think that's that's the main reason I stream is so that I have a record of what I've done in the past. And I think this tool will let people more easily consume their own content. It will make it easier for them to get feedback on their picks and should just greatly increase uh, the like self-analysis. Uh, and that's just a really important tool for learning and, and growing as a player. All right, so now card of the week. Ben, what's your card of the week? Uh, I'd like to talk about a new card in the Curated Pack, Barrel Through. So Barrel Through is a two justice fast spell that provides uh, a unit of your choice, any unit, yours or an opponent's, plus three plus three, and then gives you an influence of your choice between fire and primal. So I believe that this is now our best combat trick in the format, at, at common anyway. Um, so it gives you the same stats as high alert, but half as much, and it fixes you, which is extremely important in this format. Just the the casual fixing that's provided by this like board-impacting uh, combat trick, it's just a really good way to get a little extra fixing in your deck. You can play Strangers, but then you run out of room for the strangers 
And so you need to get your fixing from somewhere else. Sometimes you get it from your power base, and sometimes you can get it from your spells. So this is just a, a really good way to get some interaction and thing at the same time. Uh, I think Be Gone in this cycle is also quite good. The other ones are maybe not as amazing, uh, but <laughs> certainly Barrel Through and to a lesser extent Be Gone are extremely good cards in this format. Also, because you can cast it on your opponent's creatures, you can uh, break hostile takeovers, which can be quite a blowout. So <laughs> keep that in mind. Uh, what about you, Patrick? What card is calling out to you in the, the first weeks of this format? Yeah, the card that I wanted to call out is Expedition Leader, which we talked about this a couple episodes ago. <laughs> it's the two-time 1-1 one, one that when a unit of yours emerges, draw two cards if Expedition Leader's on the board. We're talking about this because they, they buffed it to a 2-2, two, two, or uh, because it, now it costs one power? Is that... No, nope. no, no, we're we're talking about this actually because I played against listener Meagles um, the other day, and he drew two cards off of it against me, and then was about to draw another two more when I luckily top decked my only Streets of Flame and was able to kill it. And afterwards, we talked a little bit about Expedition Leader. Mostly I mentioned it to him as a joke because we had just I said it was like I had just said it was one of my most disappointing cards from the from set six. But he was kind of arguing that it might be a little better in 6.5. So I wanted to lay out his case, um, which I was eager to believe and see if you could be a little bit convinced. So the two main things that I think have helped improve this card and that potentially improve this card in the new format is one is there's there's less removal. That's definitely true. There's there's a lot less removal. It, it is harder to use a removal spell on a on a one one, uh, so it it should live a little bit more than it used to in the past. Yeah. Number two is the fixing is is so much better in this format. You've actually widened the scope of shift cards that you can play. So you have more more so. Despite you still only having one pack worth of shift cards, you can play more of the shift cards that you see. That's, yes, that's because you're not you're not limited to say time and primal or time and shadow. You could po- potentially play the shift cards, you know, because the shift cards are in all five colors, and it's yeah. much easier to play a three, four, or five color deck, and so potentially easier to get a critical mass of shift cards in your deck to make Expedition Leader better, and your Expedition Leader is also theoretically living a little bit longer. I think both of those things are true. So it, I believe it. you are correct when you say that it is better than it was in the past format. I read it as something like a negative one or zero in, in the past <laughs> format, so that it's better than that is good. Um, I, I still don't think, so one of the arguments you're making is that you could be multicolor and play this. I, I think mm-hmm. you could also be multicolor and just play some really good cards. Uh, you right. don't necessarily have to play the shift cards, you could just play the best cards. And, and so I think you'd be wanting to take advantage of like late pick shift cards potentially, like mm-hmm. the 1-4 in Primal or Snowmass Jotun or something like that where the, the cards are maybe a little lower power level, but you get them late. 
and I do think like being able to play all of those that you see is is going to be better. So we talked about this a little bit when we talked about Expedition Leader the last time, but Expedition Leader is like super negative tempo because you use your turn two to play a creature that doesn't attack or block, mm -hmm. and then you do a bunch of shifting, and the shifting creatures also can't attack or block. So you get yourself into this position where you're going to be behind. Right. And then you're going to draw a card, which is good if, you're, if your guy lives, but drawing cards doesn't give you board position. And then the unblockable part doesn't really help you because you're kind of, you're going to be behind. It's going to be like a, more like a chalice effect where it's kind of negative tempo, but value in the long run than mm -hmm. a effect like maybe a clock tower or something where when your thing goes off, it goes off like much bigger. So you're, you're going to want to, I think this could be successful. But what you're going to want to fill in around your shift creatures is going to be some defensive creatures. Right. Because you're going to want things like two fours for three, or Scaly Gruen is not in the format anymore, but that would be a good card to complement this strategy. So some kind of defensive four drop, defensive, 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 and that'll let your uh, shift units come off shift, and it'll let you live long enough to draw your expedition leaders and cast them and get your value. If you play just mono shift, then I think you're going to be in serious tempo problems. Mm -hmm. And you, you just need whatever you're, you're supporting that with has to be pretty good. Also, because a, a problem that you're going to have is all your shift cards are in, in pack one. Well, there isn't any removal in, in pack two. So you're going to draw a lot of cards, but a lot of them, you're going you're gonna to have to prioritize removal versus shift units in pack one. And that'll be a very important card evaluation skill. Uh, so I think this deck will be a little tricky to put together, but mm -hmm. I think I think there's potential to it. And if you take a good approach to building the deck to cover the weaknesses that your strategy has, then uh, I think you'll be you, you can be successful. Yes, I, I think that's a really cool idea. The other thing that I was thinking about, and I wonder if you have the same feeling, is that there feels like there are fewer aggressive decks than there were so i i feel like the tempo loss from playing a two time one one is a little less punishing because you have a little bit more chance to then play some defensive creatures and you're not as likely to get punished for it i think uh if your opponents are me then i think you are right if, if they're playing like maybe a little bit slower mid-range deck Mm -hmm. A little bit awkward power. Unfortunately, I think there is hole in the metagame that will be filled by uh, some hyper aggressive decks in response to this like slow and clunky mid range ish mm -hmm. deck. Uh, and we have seen some submissions like that to the Farming Eternal spreadsheet where people are just going super aggro. And you can definitely do that because it's likely underdrafted right now. And you can use picks. You don't have to use picks on fixing. You can use picks mm -hmm. on the powerful cards that you see that are happen to be in your colors. And you ran into this on your draft. You didn't have to take quite as much fixing because you happen to have powerful cards in your colors. I think that is going to be a strategy we're going to have to take a look at in the upcoming weeks as well. The, the, the more aggressive strategy to like counterbalance the slow, clunky mid-range decks that are likely to have some success uh, mm -hmm. Once the format develops a little bit. And I think these shift decks are going to have the same weaknesses as the mid-range decks. So you have to be 
a little careful of that in the long run. But I think in the short run, you'll be able to have some success here. I think that that is good to point out. And uh, I do do want to bring up one counterpoint, and um, this is also from Discord. The user Allison, uh, she's been participating quite a bit in Discord, and we had a a conversation today about uh, Scout, and it was in regard to the Backpackers Machete and Clan Barracks. And she was talking about how the Scout Synergy decks have sort of gone down in her estimation a little bit because a lot of these these value engines that she felt like worked for her in set six work a little bit less because although, like I just said, I think there are so far fewer aggressive decks in this format, there are, I think, more ways to break a board stall in this format. And so there's cards like Frostwave, there's Barrel Through, there's Bottoms Up. There's a lot of ways to win the game out of nowhere. And so it makes relying on these sort of slow value engines a little bit more precarious. Also, like every every cannon that gets drafted is likely to be played. Whereas in the past, some people were going to draft a cannon and then they couldn't because red wasn't open and there's no fixing. Mm-hmm. Whereas now they're they're going every cannon that gets drafted is going in a deck, and cannon is a card that breaks board stalls pretty well. So I do think that is a point against in favor, and I thought that was a pretty interesting point that she brought up. Shall we go to the seven win run breakdown? Sure. Uh, we had forty eight lists submitted this week, which is pretty good for uh, a new format, and we only had um, part of the format in, in this week uh, from uh, thirty listeners. So that's quite a few listeners. Uh, the new listeners are uh, Ojack, Orthon, Randall Darkstar, Squid Krieg, and The Most Greg. Our veteran listeners are Adam H. with three lists, myself uh, with four lists, Darth Herman 2, Dubes, Jedi EJ, John Holio, Jose Carlos 2121, Cassandra, Kid Sneelock, Mancio 1982 with three lists, Matty Oker, Meagles, Nothership, Patamara with two lists, Raven Dragon, Roper with three lists, Rizla with three lists, Savage Fantastic, Sunblaze, Telemokos, Turnflame, Waiter, Yam Yam, Yistout, and Zelda64. Thank you all for all of your contributions in week one. Week one is the most important week to get deck lists, week one, two, and three, because we need to get our sample sizes up for the, the spreadsheet. Uh, and uh, the large majority of these lists were in uh, set 6.5. So thank you very much, everyone, for uh, for sending those in. What's your um, list of the week this week, Ben? Sure. So my list of the week is Savage Fantastic's list, list 21, uh, which, as I've said before, there have been some extremely aggressive lists in this uh, this week. Uh, it, it's a hyper aggro list. It has 11 one-cost plays, which is just insane. Nine two-cost plays. The, uh, the potential for a turn three blurt stigma lock, uh, which is a little insane, I would say. Like turn five blurt stigma lock is ahead of the curve. And he had an 887 power base for a three color deck, which is that's pretty strong when you have such a, such an aggressive curve to also have fixing to play all your cards. So I think uh, he also didn't have many uh, double influence cards in his deck. Uh, so I think he probably did not have many influence problems in, in his curve-out uh, aggressive deck. So I think 
this is a list a lot of us can learn from. And uh, if you don't like playing mid-range, maybe do something like this. And you can prey on those, those mid-range people like myself. All right. And so I think that's about it for the seven-run breakdown. We'll obviously go into more as we um, get more lists. But right now, you know, because we only have 40-something lists, so the sample size is very low right now, and the variance is a bit a, a bit high. So, for example, you know Ben with his four lists um, is about ten percent of the spreadsheet right now, which means corrupted behemoth and barrel through are probably going to be slightly overrepresented, even though they're admittedly good cards. But I think you know once we start getting up into the hundreds, you know a hundred lists or whatever and there's a f more lists of each of the colors, I think we'll be able to, things will start to even out and we'll be able to see what's sort of really happening across a wide variety of lists. Because, you know, like we said, we have 40 something lists, but from 30 different listeners. So even though right now Ben is, you know, 10% of the spreadsheet, there's still a lot of lists and a, a lot of different people with different drafting ha habits submitting it so it's that's the thing that helps show what cards are generically powerful, we think. So I think hopefully next week or the week after, you know, we can start going through the top commons and what it seems like each color is doing. But uh, for now, we're going to end the 7-1 breakdown at that. Okay, so now we're going to go over a little bit more quadrant theory. So last week, we talked about uh, the first quadrant, or as Ben likes to call it the first phase of evaluating cards which is developing so if you want to hear more about the developing phase and how you can think about what cards are good in developing to help you evaluate cards you could listen to the last episode which was episode 26. this week we're going to talk about evaluating cards when you're losing or behind so take it away ben so in in developing one of the main things you want to do in developing is to not get behind but sometimes if you're weak in developing or draw the wrong half of your deck first, you end up in a position where your opponent is ahead or you are behind. So your opponent has several creatures and you have none. They are attacking you for damage. And cards are often quite a bit better or worse than normal in this sort of a situation. Uh, in many ways, this is the most important phase of the game because it's one that directly leads to you losing the game. Uh, if you if you can't recover from being behind, you lose. So if you fall back and fall behind in developing, you you get into a losing state. If you fall behind in a losing state, you lose, <laughs> and, and then there's no there's no recovering from that. Uh, so and even if you are an aggressive deck, you may be facing another aggressive deck, maybe with a better draw than you. So you'll you'll be behind in some of those games as well, uh, or maybe your opponent has interaction and strong interaction and early development, and you'll end up behind. So it is important for all decks to consider this phase. It's most important for mid-range and control decks to be good at this phase because they are more likely to be in it uh, when facing up against an opposing aggressive uh, deck or an aggressive start from, from a mid-range deck. One of the things you need to consider when you're losing is you need to catch back up quickly. So some of the best cards to catch back up are cheap interaction, like uh, Permafrost or Suffocate. Those are both one-cost cards that kill a unit. Suffocate 
it's extremely good because it just kills very large units as well. Lightning Strike is very good when you're behind because the disadvantage of Lightning Strike is your opponent has to attack you. Well, when you're losing, your opponent is attacking you, so that disadvantage is not really there. They're going to attack into you, you're going to Lightning Strike their guy, and you're going to get good value out of your removal spell. Another type of card that's very good when you're behind are Sweepers, like a Malediction or now Harsh Rule, which is in the format. There's even another Sweeper in the format. End of the story, I think. If your opponent gets out to a fast, aggressive start, and you Malediction, that's the minus three to all creatures. Well, you kill all their guys, and you didn't have any, so now you're back to parity. You're not losing anymore, so that's great. But th those are rare, so you don't see them as much. Another type of unit that's very good when you're losing are defensively statted units. For example, the the two fours for three, like Watchful Aminara or Rusty Grenomotive, because those tend to block and kill their units. They, they can still get some damage in, but they'll lose a creature, and then next turn they'll lose another creature, and then the next turn they'll lose another creature. So you're taxing their their advantage, whereas a card like a 0-6, like a Copper Hall Shield Man or whatever that card was called, that one doesn't, it, it prevents you from losing it as quickly, but it doesn't reduce their pressure. Right. So you need, you need the, your defensive creature to be offensive enough to kill one of theirs, or more than one potentially, but defensive enough to not die. So that's why the 2-4 the is kind of a, a really good stat line there. Corrupted Behemoth is like the king of this because turn five, you slap that down. The four attack will kill basically anything. And it's very hard for them to get through the six toughness. And then you start gaining life back, which is very good when you're losing. You tend to be behind on life. Cards like Lethroid Dire Beast are extremely good in this sort of situation. You can play it on curve. It's a 3-3 that kills most small creatures without dying, importantly. Also, in the if you're behind and have, for example, one big creature... You can give that one big creature lifesteal, attack with it, gain a bunch of life, and it doesn't really matter what your opponent does anymore. Uh, you're winning at that point. Um, Lumen Defender in past formats was just crazy. A 1-5 uh, creature for 5 that gained you 5 life when it came into play. That just ticks all the boxes for a good stabilization creature. Gains you life, blocks and kills any of their creatures. Hard to kill. That's the sort of creature you want. So... One question I had in um, this category is Scaly Gruon. Scaly Gruon is not in the current format, but as a 1-4 for 2 Primal, would you call that a good card for catching you up when you're behind? Because I feel like that card doesn't fit in this category necessarily, because I would rather play that when developing, sort of on curve, if I'm playing a slower, more mid-range deck, as compared to, oh no, they've gotten off to a fast start, and it's turn five, and I throw down a Scaly Gruon, that, that is, to me, is much more like the 0-6 than the 2-4 Watchful Aminara. Yeah, I, I, I agree uh, with that. The one, uh, a Scaly Gruon would block something like uh, Blurry Chaser pretty well, Mm -hmm. or like a pyro depth, but it's definitely better to pay a little more and get slightly more offense. Like like you say, I, I do agree that Scaly Grown is, is a better curve creature, uh, and it does like prevent you from losing, but it doesn't really stabilize you as well as, as a slightly larger creature would. What you're really getting out of Scaly Grown is that it costs two, so hopefully you can make like two plays on the same turn. Right. 
two scaly brooms or a scaly brune and a and a streets of flame or something, then maybe that's the stabilization play that you need just due to the cheapness and the relatively defensive stats of the creature. So I, I agree. Uh, then the other one I wanted to bring up is in the in the uh, interaction examples you gave uh, to tie this back into the last quadrant, you know, like a couple of these, like suffocate, I think you mentioned last episode too, as, and uh, char, we talked about as a one power sort of interactive spell that allows you to play a spell and develop. Yeah. And so it's those, these really cheap interaction spells are, are good when you're behind and good when in the developing phase, but sort of lightning strike um, pops out to me as an example of maybe an interaction spell that's not quite as great in the developing stage, but better in this um, it, when you're losing or behind. And so I wondered if you could talk a bit about how that changes your sort of overall evaluation of lightning strike. Yeah, I, I completely agree with you, Patrick. So when you're an aggressive deck, lightning strike is not a good card in that deck in general. If you're if you're attacking with say ground creatures or something, your opponent if you're playing an aggressive strategy, you put your opponent on the back foot and they will play defensively. They're unlikely to attack you, so your lightning strike doesn't do anything. That that's so it's a it's a pretty bad card when you're ahead, lightning strike, and it's not it's not great when you're developing because you're typically killing something that is inexpensive. When you're developing, you'd rather just play a stranger and block in the developing stage, then cast a lightning strike on their stranger. That's not something that you really want to do. But definitely these, something you mentioned was the, the cheap interaction spells being good in multiple phases. That's definitely true. Cheap interaction is basically always good in, in every phase. So that's why it's su- such a powerful card. It doesn't really matter what's going on in the game. The cheap interaction is going to do, do pretty well for you. So you were saying, so lightning strike just in general, how it changes the valuation of lightning strike. I would say lightning strike is definitely worse than some of these other options. It, it's clearly worse than the, the very powerful one power interaction that we called out, but it's maybe close to Streets of Flame. Like Streets of Flame has a lot of advantages over lightning strike, but I think lightning strike is acceptable if, if you're in more of a mid-range defensive deck, and it should go a little later than some of the more powerful options. Mm-hmm. So I think... I think it's a card that you'll get a little bit later and it'll do an okay job if you're going to be on defense a reasonable fraction of the time. I would maybe word it a little differently is that I don't know if it's like, say, a worse card or should go later in general, or maybe in general it should. But Lightning Strike, I think, is a little bit more of a deck dependent card. And so it's a card that I, looking at the different ways of evaluating the card is particularly helpful because you can look at your deck and say, is this a deck that I think I'll be losing or behind more? Or is this a deck with a lot of flyers so my opponent will be attacking me more? In which case, the lightning strike is better. But if you think that's not true, if you think your opponent's going to be on the back foot, lightning strike will actually go down in your evaluation. And it doesn't mean it's a bad card. It just means it's a little bit more of a deck-dependent card. For sure. And there's other cards like like Lightning Strike, like um, Isolate or uh, Pump Spells on Defense. Mm-hmm. If you're going to try and, try and uh, like high alert or something like that on defense, 
then th that scenario is going to be better if you can have your deck set that up as a story that your opponent will believe. Uh, the, the attacking with flying creatures and using ground blockers and lightning strikes, that's a, like a, that's a winning story because you get in for damage, they can't get in for damage, and you can kill their guys. Uh, so you just get to use all of your cards, all of your tools. They're, they're all functioning at peak efficiency. Whereas the like Skycrag ground aggro deck is not going to be casting that lightning strike on any early turn, most likely. All right, so what are some examples of bad cards when you're losing? There's actually not a lot of really good cards when you're losing. Uh, mm -hmm. There's a lot of bad cards. So like shift units are pretty bad when you're losing. You get a mana advantage with the shift, but you actually, if you shift the unit on whatever turn, you can't block with that unit for three of your opponent's attacks. Yes. So you use power on some turn and don't get to use it defensively for quite some time, potentially until after you're dead, uh, which is one of the problems you would have with things like Snowmass Jotun. You're behind and you shift in a Snowmass Jotun, you're not going to be alive when the Snowmass Jotun emerges. Uh, like Tremor Shocker has the same problem. That's why I favor Behemoth so much more strongly than Tremor Shocker. Because while in theory it comes out a turn earlier, in actuality it comes out like two turns later. Uh, also, expensive removal like Eviscerate and Gundam. We've talked about this on the show previously. Eviscerate and Gundam don't stabilize you very well because they kill one of your opponent's creatures, but then they still have all the rest. And you use your full turn and then they, for, I don't know, six or eight more damage. And then they're probably going to do that again. It just doesn't stabilize you very well compared to something like char one of their guys, play a creature. Right. That's just a much better story. Uh, also, the, the biggest offender here, in my opinion, are creatures that don't do very well on their own. So like Submerged Titan, you play a Submerged Titan of 1-1 one, one for 3, or you shift it in, which is even worse. That creature doesn't attack, it doesn't block very well at all. Warhawk is one of the most, I think when people rate Roosting Warhawk very highly, they see Steel Legion at common because it's in their mind it's a four power flyer uh, and it's common instead of Steel Legion is an uncommon. When I look at Roosting Warhawk, I see Aerial Ace with upside. And Aerial Ace is not a very good card. It's, a, it's got five stat points and it flies. Roosting Warhawk has five stat points and it flies. And both of them cost five. And maybe with some, some work, you get that Roosting Warhawk to be a 4-3. But that card does not block very well if you're on the back foot. You, you play a 5-mana 3-2. That's Argentport Soldier stats. Um, maybe you can trade with one of their guys, but you're not going to survive. And you're going to take all the rest of their creatures and damage. And then are you going to be in a better position next turn? Probably not. Angry Prophet is another one of these. So Angry Prophet, when you play it on turn 2 or... When you have no other creatures, it's a one-two. Like the worst case scenario of, for Angry Prophet is not that it's a two-two. A lot of people think that a two-two is the worst case scenario. It's a one-two, and one-two doesn't do anything. Like it, it doesn't, it doesn't block very well. It doesn't attack. It doesn't trade with one of their guys. And the thing you want to do most when you're behind is just play something that can trade, or play something that can block and survive. And Anger Prophet is not going to do that. Like I say, it may not even trade. It's very common to be attacked with strangers. Uh, also, the card is very weak against opposing removal. Like if you block with an Argentport Soldier and they char your other creature, the Argentport Soldier often dies for free. 
and that can be like a game losing transaction when you're behind. Another type of card that is not very good when you're behind is cards that don't affect the board. So, for example, uh, Horn of Plenty with no creatures in play does does nothing. Uh, so your opponent just gets to hit you again. You did nothing with your turn. They attack you with all their creatures. Uh, most relics are like this. Most non-relic weapons, anyway, are like this. You play them, they do nothing the turn you play them, and then hopefully you can catch up the tempo later. But if you're behind, you may not have the time to catch back up before you die. So you have to be cautious about playing a lot of relics that do not necessarily work very well when you're behind. That's why we, we weren't willing to play like five horns in a deck, even though horn is very good. You can't afford for that to be your turn five play unless you already have stuff happening. Also, spells that don't really do anything to affect the board are pretty bad when you're behind. Like uh, Ancient Lore, the four-cost draw two cards, or uh, a lot of the one-cost warp cards. This spell kind of doesn't do anything to prevent you from losing. It, it's okay in par- when you're in parity, but when you're actually losing, your opponent has three creatures and you have two. It doesn't really matter that you silence one of them and draw a card. Uh, it matters that you kill one of them because the silenced creature can still attack you. So it, cards cards that don't do anything kind of have to... You can't be too heavy on on that kind of card, or if you get into this sort of being behind scenario, it can be too difficult to dig yourself out of it. What What about you, Patrick? What What are some cards you can think of that uh, don't work very well when you're when you're behind? Well, the the one card that's a little interesting to me to think about because a lot of these cards that you listed are sort of in general not great card. I mean, like Angry Prophet, not that bad. Roosting Warhawk, not that bad. Submerged Titan, we both don't particularly like. You know, a lot of the do-nothing relics, we don't particularly like. A lot of the really expensive shift cards, we don't particularly like. But um, the card I was thinking about is Sieta's Faithful, which mm-hmm. I think is considered a pretty good card. It is but but it's another one of those cards that really requires you to have a board to get its buff. These like onslaught to get a buff cards seem like they're very not not great when you're behind, obviously, because you're often either trading a creature off in order to get the onslaught buff, or you're just playing a two man a two power one one. Um, I think that trading trading a creature and playing a three three that's kind of an okay story. When you have actual nothing on board, then it, I agree it is pretty bad. The The thing that I think is the best about Such is Faithful is it does a pretty good job of being a tempo play because it's it's cheap, so you can kind of afford to... But just Onslaught in general is hard when you're behind because you kind of have to attack with a creature to trigger mm-hmm. the Onslaught, and then you don't have a blocker. Like you can't use that creature to block anymore. And then... You, you play your Onslaught blocker, and you're in no better shape than when the turn started. Because the, the damage you did when you attacked did, typically doesn't matter all that much. Mm-hmm. And then your blocking situation is not much better. Now, with Svetch's Faithful, at least you're getting a 3-3, which is a reasonable blocker, I would say. So maybe it's a better blocker than whatever you attacked with, if you attacked with like a stranger or something. But I agree that such as faithful could fall in these category into this category as well. So the the last category of cards that I, I'll like to bring up is pummel. We talked about pummel on the previous shows. You can't cast pummel on defense where you can cast a card like daring maneuver. So pummel doesn't do a very good job when you're in. You just can't cast the card. 
Um, that should give you an idea of some of the cards that are not very good on defense. And you kind of have to look at when you're when you're losing, you have to be extremely skeptical. When, when you're thinking about the losing phase, you have to be extremely skeptical of how good the card is. And this this is why I call out Roosting Warhawk and Angry Prophet, because people look at Angry Prophet and say, well, that's a five two for two, or they look at Roosting Warhawk and say that's Steel Legion. But you you have to be more conservative and think a little bit more of the worst case scenarios for these cards uh, to evaluate how good they are in this losing phase of the game. And you're, you're just going to be in this situation in a, in a reasonable percentage of the games. I would say in 30 to 40 percent of games, you'll be in a losing scenario. And if you can never convert those to wins, you're, you're going to have a hard time getting to the seven win uh, threshold. So don't underestimate the importance of this phase. It comes up all the time. It's very important to have stabilization plays, to have cards that are good when you're losing. Uh, creatures, cheap interaction, sweepers if you can have them. Just in general, consider this phase a lot more than you're considering it. I think it's probably the most underappreciated phase because it requires you to think about the game differently. You, you can't be optimistic about this phase. That'll end our the next phase in our uh, sort of series on quadrant theory. I think we'll probably continue these over the next few shows because we got two more phases to discuss. Actually, but, three more phases. Oh, three more phases. So it's not really quadrant. Yeah, that's why it's not it's not quadrant theory because it's not quadrants. And it's it's pentadrants, I think, is what that's uh, technically called. I, I tried to come up with A, B, C, D, E, and I couldn't make it happen because there's too many E's. But it's like A, B, C, D, E theory is, is what I would call it. It's just phase theory. What Think about the different phases you can have in a game, the different states you can be in. Ooh, this is exciting. So we're, done a, we're, done, we're starting a new five-phase card evaluation theory here on the Farming Eternal podcast. Maybe in 10 years on the next big uh, digital card game, people will be referencing Ben starting his five-phase quadrant theory for card evaluation. This is exciting. That would be great. But uh, this is the section of the podcast that I'm really excited about. I think this is one of the first times on the podcast that we've really had access to, um, you know, the Discord and a lot of discussion and a lot of information just coming at us at once. And we really, I think, nailed down a fun deck that not only you, but a lot of the listeners on the Discord have been having success with. And that's really sort of taking advantage of all the color fixing in packs two and three and making some pretty wild decks that are working out for you and the listeners in Discord in this new format. So we kind of wanted to break that down and tell you how to get into these uh, multicolor mid-range or these four or five color mid-range decks. Um, So you've been, like you said, you've had seven drafts so far of this format and a lot of them have had a lot of colors in them. So you are the person to talk to about how to get into this deck, Ben. Sure, and, and I actually think it's it's quite easy to get into, and there's a lot of advantages to it. So the advantage to drafting a, a multicolor midrange deck is you can just take the best card out of every pack. Like your card evaluation skills help you because they tell you which card is the in general the best, and then you just take that card. It, you you don't have to consider as much like what colors you're in or or whatnot. Now the the costs of it are 
you have to be very responsible in terms of how high you take fixing. In a more conservatively colored deck, like a, a two-color deck with a splash, you don't need a lot of fixing, so you can use more of your picks to take cards that you'll play, but then they have to be in the colors that you're in. If you're in a five-color deck, every card is in a color that you're in, so you can just take, take the best one. Now, it's very difficult to prioritize that fixing high enough that you get it while also uh, getting high-quality cards to make the inconsistencies of a five-color power base minimal, let's say. I think the, the most maybe stunning thing about this that may or may not make sense to people is that you basically don't take any two-drops in pack one. There's a lot of two-drops in pack one you could take, and in, in set six, you were basically starving for two-drops. So you take everything that you could see. An Argent Fork Soldier was like a top five card because it was a two-drop. But in set 6.5, we have Strangers Aplenty. And the more colors you play, the more strangers fit into your deck that, because they will be double on strangers. Uh, so you're going to basically take as many strangers as you can, and that's going to be maybe six or seven or eight strangers that you're offered that you're going to actively want to take. So there's not really a lot of room for the traditional uh, two drops that you might play in a, in a curve. So like... So really the only two drops I would really strongly consider are Blurry Chaser and Devotee of Sands because those cards do kind of unique things and are okay not on two and ramp you into your big mid-range stuff or scout to find threats, that kind of thing. But your standard two drop, like even something like Clodo, I, I just wouldn't even consider that card because it's not as good as a stranger. Um, it, cards have to be like very good before they're uh, better than the fixing to cast your extremely good cards. So uh, unless the two drop is, is on the very top end uh, of two drops, I just wouldn't take it at all in, in pack one and typically not in pack two either, unless it's some kind of a fixing two drop, like Trailmaker, Bannerman, or the Ten Strangers. I, I think a couple other exceptions maybe are Avalanche Yeti for obvious reasons. Avalanche Yeti is not really a two drop. And we just talked a little bit about Spetchy's Faithful. That card's not really a two-drop either. But I think that card's fine. I wouldn't have counted it as a two-drop in 6.0. I wouldn't count it as a two-drop in 6.5 either. So just strongly deprioritize your typical curve two-drops in favor of your strangers in the second pack. So the, the next thing I would talk about is you're going to be playing four or five colors in this deck. So it, it's important to strongly prioritize fixing. The, the best fixing are the two-drop creatures like Strangers, Bannermen, and Trailmaker because they provide you influence fixing that do not require you to remove a sigil from your deck. One thing I talk about is you need like points of fixing. And a Stranger is, to, let's say you have Skycrag Stranger. Skycrag Stranger provides two influence, so that is two points. But Skycrag Banner only provides one point of influence because it is replacing a sigil. The sigil provides one, the banner provides two, but the difference between those is one influence. So a stranger is twice as good as a banner or a crest or any other, like two, an insignia, any other two color source. So I, I like strongly prioritize strangers because of this. 
And then banners are like the second tier and tokens are probably, tokens are tricky because if you're in a uh, deck with low influence requirements, tokens could be actually quite good. But if you're in a deck with heavy influence requirements, like you have multiple double influence cards, it's hard to decide what to choose with the token. If you have like double fire, double primal, double justice, and you have an Ixton token, what are you supposed to choose? You, you just don't know. Even if you have a primal or if you have a shadow or a, a fire, you, you don't know which which one to get. So your your fixing has to be extremely good for, for that kind of deck before you know what, what to even play the card as. So you want to take good cards, but the cards you take over fixing have to be extremely good. You want to be taking top tier cards over fixing and then fixing over everything else, basically. And it's really important that you do that or your deck is likely going to crash and burn because you just don't have enough sources. You can't play any of your cards and you'll not have very good results. So just in general, like a, a random good card like Toroid Test Pilot, I think that's, that has enough going for it that it might be worth taking over fixing. But a card like Flickerling, which is not in the format, but something, something like Flickerling or uh, Valkyrie Militant or uh, a two, four for three is just not good enough to take over the fixing. Yeah. You have to take fixing over almost everything. So this is a bit of a hypothetical cause I can't off the top of my head, think of a card in the curated packs that are, is sort of equivalent to our toward test pilot. But hypothetically, if toward test pilot was in the draft packs, would you take the stranger over the toward test pilot or would you yes. take the, yeah. Well, so I would take Torrid Test Pilot over the bad fixing, and I would take the good fixing over Torrid Test Pilot. Okay, that's what I wanted to get across is there's a range of fixing, and the better the fixing, the much higher the requirement for how good a card is in order for it to beat the fixing. And so Torrid Test Light, Pilot, great card, but... If it were up against strangers, you think strangers are good enough that it's like just about any card, um, you would still take the stranger. It's hard. It's hard to beat stranger. Like three, three flyer for three, I would take over a stranger. Like I would take Torrid Test Pilot over Insignia and pack one probably because Insignia is <laughs> not in the not in the top end of fixing. But a lot of cards that you think are reasonable cards, like you would say they're good or they're you know above average. You don't take those cards over fixing. You take cards that are extremely good over fixing. Like you would take Elder Astrologer. Sure, take Elder Astrologer over fixing because that's a bomb. Take a Xenon uh, Obelisk. Take a, something very strong over fixing. Don't take something that's above average over fixing. So another card that you have listed here that you don't have in the great fixing, which I think will surprise people a little bit, is uh, Seek Power, because I think Seek Power is a card that most people are like, oh, I got two Seek Powers, you know, like I've got excellent fixing in this deck, you know, because it can be one of any of my colors. But is it maybe not quite as good in a five-faction deck, or is there certain decks that it's better or worse in? 
I think it's worse than I would I would say it's difficult to argue that it's uh, seek power is better than Bannerman, for example, because mm -hmm. both of you give the influence. Seek power replaces a power, so uh, it, it doesn't give quite as many color options as Bannerman does, because with Bannerman you'll have some random power in your deck as well. Um, but just in general, the things that give you a choice, like uh, Bannerman, Trailmaker, Seek Power, uh, Favors, those can be good or like higher than normal in decks, like a four-color deck with no double influence. Because mm -hmm. you're just going to draw some of the colors, and the choice lets you pick the one color that you're missing, and you're good to go. But the heavier your influence requirements, the worse these cards are. Because Seek Power gives you one of your choice. One of your choice can be worse than two that you don't get to choose, like a, a stranger. It's kind of a trade-off depending on how heavy the requirements are in the deck. In general, you don't want the requirements to be super heavy. You want to have one or two colors that you're, you have double influence in. But if you get yourself into kind of a bad situation, you have a lot of double-colored double cards, favors can be very difficult to play correctly. Correctly because you don't know what you're going to draw. Which of your double influence cards are you going to draw in the future at some point? You don't know. But you just right. kind of have to play the, the token to develop your power base. So you have to make a decision without information. And it's just hard for that decision to be correct. And then I think some people could think like, oh, but the, you know, the strangers just give you some random influence too. So that's not necessarily going to give you your double influence colors. But like you were mentioning, the strangers give you two. So you're tw almost not quite, but you're twice as likely for those two random colors to be like the color that you're going, the double influence color that you're going to need than the seek power where it's only giving you one color. So you're much less likely to sort of less likely to hit the one of your three double influence colors you have. If you have a heavy double influence requirement deck. Yeah. And if you have, I've had decks with a lot of strangers and you get to like triple of each color. Mm -hmm. by the end of the game like you, you're gonna eventually get there it's just how how off curve you're gonna have to play yeah. and the more like single influence power you play the harder it's going to be to get to that end game situation so it's still good i would i would pick a triple on token over a half on banner or whatever clearly so I think like a triple on token is is still a quite a good fixer. If it's triple on, you just have to uh, understand you're taking on slight risk there if you have a lot of double influence cards. Mm -hmm. Which um, you should be avoiding as much as you can. Just in general, you should. And so, but for high power level cards, for decks with a lot of fixing, it can work. And it's definitely dynamic. Like the the priority of the fixing versus the the good cards depends strongly on what you currently have. Mm -hmm. If you have like, oftentimes on stream we'll be midway through pack three and I'll say, well, do I need to take this fixing or not? And I'll say to myself, I have forty influence sources in this four color deck. That's ten influence of the, of each color. I can make that work. I don't need more fixing. So then I can take you know, a playable card over fixing. 
Whereas if I have not enough, then I have to take even bad fixing over good playables just because you have to, you have to get that fixing in there. You can't just take the best non-fixing card in, in each color for 48 picks and expect that you'll magically draft some fixing in there somewhere. So what's uh, uh, other uh, card types that maybe go up or down in this deck? I think uh, removal just in the format in general is extremely important, especially in pack one. In pack one, the removal is not competing with fixing, so it's a little easier to take. And in pack one, there's just no fixing. So take your removal when you can. In the past format, I, I was kind of down on a card like Eviscerate because it's kind of clunky, kind of hard to cast, doesn't really stabilize you very well. I'm taking that card a lot higher now just because removal is rare. You, you don't have gun down to take. You don't have the better cards, mob rule, extract, that sort of thing, out of the curated packs. So you just have to take what you can get, and those cards are only in the uh, set six packs. So, so take them when you see them. The other thing that I would say is it's quite easy to create a board stall if you draft towards it. I talk about this a lot on the Discord, but you know, you put a bunch of two fours and three fives in your deck, you're going to get into board stalls because your opponent can't kill all those creatures and you're going to do some double blocking and they're going to have some attacks that don't look so good. So you're going to have a board stall. Now the thing, the, the thing you want to be careful of if you draft a lot of defensive creatures and you know, creatures that are good at blocking and good at stabilizing you, is that you need a way to win the game. In set five, what I would do is I would create a board stall and then lose to their flyers. That taught me a lesson in that format that you need some way to win the game. You can't just play a bunch of three fives and expect to win. So I like highly prioritize these cards that let me win when I've created a board stall, which includes flyers, removal for, for flying units, spiteful strike, or uh, cannon, heretics cannon are extremely good at breaking board stalls. Horn is good in board stalls because uh, you just make all your guys big on attack and defense, and then they don't have any good blocks, and then you just can just kind of hammer your way through. And then, like, a big tempo spell, like uh, Frost Wave or Bottoms Up or something like that, can be extremely good at breaking board stalls. If we had a card like the cards that exhaust all your opponent's units, that can be good enough to just kill your opponent in a board stall. And even if it doesn't kill them, they may not be able to attack you because they can't kill you, and then you just get to hit them again. Having one of a card like that in your deck when you're extremely good at creating board stalls is a good way to win the game once you've done so. You have to have a plan to win. All right. Should we give a quick summary of um, how to get into this deck? So in just in general in pack one, take all the good cards. It doesn't matter what color the cards are, just take them all. Uh, if they're above average cards. You, you occasionally see fixing in pack one, consider taking the fixing in pack one in the insignias, bulbous humbug, that kind of card. And then pack two and three, take bombs over fixing and fixing over replacement level cards. Uh, and just make sure that when you're taking something over a fixing card, it really is a very good card because you need the fixing. So and you feel that the playable count is high enough that you can afford to, I, I say this in quotes, but like waste all of these picks on fixing. I, I think that's an extremely good question because that was a serious problem in five, uh, 
I did do a lot of splashing in 6.0, and there were not very many playables, so you could often get yourself into playable trouble. The good part about taking fixing in um, 6.5 is that half of the things you're taking are just creatures, like strangers or trailmakers or bannermen or humbugs or things like that, and that gives you playables if you just play those cards. The, the only cards you're really taking a hit on are the power that you take, and you do typically have to draft some power, some banners or crests or whatever, tokens. Uh, and those are picks that do not like count against your playables. So you do have to find some more, but I, I do find that this, deck is, this uh, format is rich in playables. There are far less unplayable um, spells and creatures. The creatures are a little better statted. So I am often in these five color decks cutting five to eight cards out of the deck at the end of the building phase. And mm -hmm. that just means that you really are not paying a cost for this. When you can when you can draft the best card of any color, you're going to have a lot of playables because whatever color is open, you take the cards of that color in that pack. Uh, and if if a color is deeper than the other colors in one pack really open, you, you get some playables out of that color. You get some playables out of another color. You just have a lot of uh, a lot of playable cards when you're when you don't care what color the cards are. I, I find that playable count is not not remotely a, a problem for this strategy. It might be harder in a, in a two color strategy to get enough playables than in a five color. It'll be interesting to see as this format goes. It's a self perpetuating thing as more people are drafting these, you know, four or five color decks. You, the si signals are getting sort of a little bit out of whack. And so it almost, you know, you're not able to get into these like two color lanes as easily and get enough good cards because you have someone ahead of you who's just taking the best cards. And if, and so there's fewer open colors almost. I agree. So I think, I think once, if there were a whole lot more people trying to draft this strategy, what would happen is the, like bomb level playables would go down for everyone and we'd be competing for the fixing but there's a lot of fixing so um i think you'd still be able to make the deck work even if there were more people drafting it and i think it does like you say impact the the benefit for finding the open color in a in a two or three color deck now i don't think there's going to be very many people doing this strategy in general because it's actually kind of hard to pull off if you're just kind of doing random things, like you take high power level cards over fixing, you're just not going to have a playable deck and you're going to lose and you think the strategy is bad. But if you appropriately prioritize fixing, it, it can be an extremely powerful uh, strategy and it does definitely test your card evaluation in the draft phase and your ability to dynamically adjust to what your deck needs at the time and, and what the draft is offering you in terms of of fixing versus not fixing. So I think here we're going to actually walk through a draft that you did on stream. So there will be two ways that uh, the listeners can follow along if they would like. Three ways, I guess. You could first listen to our beautifully painted pictures of words. You <laughs> could watch Ben's Twitch video. And then we'll also have a, a post a link 
from our website to a document that'll have all of the screenshots that we discuss in it. And we're going to do this a little differently because this is a, a draft that Ben did. And so that got him into a, a four color uh, mid-range good stuff deck. And he's just going to walk through his thought process and how this draft sort of I don't know if forced is the right word, but how he sort of navigated this draft into that deck. I think you can. Force is not a, necessarily a bad word to use for this. Mm -hmm. I think for the time being, you can force this strategy just because it's kind of always open. At least in pack one, it's going to be open. Uh, in, in the later packs, maybe you'll be fighting with people for the same budget. So if we look at pack one here, I open it up and I see uh, Cloud Snake Matriarch, my bane from the top 16. Uh, Draftmaster Sherman. Uh, there's War Wagon, a 3 3 4 3 double justice that you can ship for 5 to get something else plus 3 plus 3. And uh, Devotee of the Sands and Crooked Alley Guide. Uh, and I take uh, Cloud Snake Matriarch out of this pack. Now I think Primal got a lot better in this format because there's more fixing and because you can get playables from other colors and still play the Primal cards. You can be playing two or three colors and just splash a few primal cards, and that's okay. Uh, Cloud Snake Matrix is not super easy to splash, but you have to support it well. But I've had decks that had four primal cards, three of which were, were double primal, and I just played eight sources, and it was fine. Yeah, and it's a, as, you, as you talk about a lot, it's a, a later card, so it's a little bit easier than, say, a Frost Elemental to have yeah. double primal by six than by three. So this okay. is one of those examples where having being more expensive is a slight advantage. So yeah, and it's a it's a way to win when you've developed the board. So I don't take Divinity of the Sands here because of the thing I've said before. Two drops, you're going to have probably eight or ten two drops to pick between. You don't want to use high picks on two drops. Um, and Cloud Snake Matrix, Cloud Snake Matrix is just kind of the most powerful card in the pack, so we take it. Mm-hmm. So okay. Then we move to pick two and we see another kind of doozy of an uncommon row here. We see Heretic's Cannon, uh, Bane of the Format, <laughs> uh, Umbran Voidbringer, which is the double shadow 2-2 uh, flyer for four that gets a unit back from your void with Onslaught, and we see another Cloud Snake Matriarch. Now, I think if we were in 6.5 here, we'd be considering the Cloud Snake Matriarch to stay on color, quote-unquote, but I think that's definitely not the right pick here. Cloud Snake Matrix is a good card, but I think both Umber and Voidbringer and Heretic's Cannon are better cards. Uh, and when you're in this strategy, you do not consider what you have taken already and what you are in as a primary factor. You consider power level. And in my mind, Heretic's Cannon has the highest power level here. It's also a little easier to cast than Umber and Voidbringer. If I can stay to a single influence, I'd like to do so. And like the the synergy of Cloud Snake Matrix with itself is not something I consider here. It's just pure power level Heretic's Cannon. Do, do yeah. you agree that Heretic's Cannon is the most powerful card? Because this is the thing that we should you should worry about. Like, am I making the right decisions for for power level? Yes, I would say that uh, I think Heretic's Cannon is the best card in this pack. And for like the reasons you said, it's single influence, which raises it up even higher. So let's go into pick three. In pick three, the cards in contention, there's a Streets of Flame, there's a Shield Crafter, which is the five justice, two six onslaught, you gain six health. 
And that's about it for the powerful cards. Yeah, so I would, I talked earlier about how removal is very good. Streets of Flame is good removal. We're, we're taking it here because it's the best card, not because I took Heretic's Cannon. Shieldcrafter is good at creating board stalls. It's good at stabilizing you. But I think the removal is a rarer thing to see than the defensive creature. So that's why I took the removal. And then now going into pick four, cards in contention. There is a Headhunter, which is the one Justice 2-1 that can twist for two to play Wanted Poster. There's a Cobalt Coin, a Rallying Sergeant, which is uh, on color for fire. And then there is a Torrid Test Pilot. I think it's this is an easy Torrid Test Pilot because it's a flying unit. It can kill our opponent. Uh, it's a single influence card, the best rated card in this pack, I'm, I'm fairly certain. And it's just a good standalone defensive and offensive card. When it comes down, it's defensive. When it kills your opponent, it's offensive. And that's the way you want your cards to be uh, oriented. Uh, this pack does bring up an interesting thing that I wanted to ask you about, is the coins. Do those lower in your evaluation because they're taking up sort of a, a precious depleted power slot? I think so... There are things about coins that make me like them more, and there's things about coins that make me like them less. So I, I like coins because they replace sigils, and I'm probably going to be playing a fair amount of sigils in the deck. So it kind of, like I've talked about in, in past podcasts, it makes a splash less painful because you get some value out of the power base to get there. You are correct in that it is depleted power. It only matters when you're onslaughting. You have to like attack to get the onslaught trigger. So... I would say I'm probably slightly lower on coins than I was in set set six, but that's because there's more playables to compete with them, maybe. Mm-hmm. Uh, and if you're playing like a super mid-range deck, you're probably going to be on defense, and being on defense, you don't really want the big power or onslaught triggers. Yeah, I just would be worried. You know, you have a couple tokens. If you get a couple, you know, an insignia or two, you know, maybe your banners aren't always on. And then you can, you know, you're picking a couple seek powers, and all of a sudden you're like, oh geez, I have six, seven depleted power. Yeah, that's definitely like you, your deck is probably going to be pretty good at playing from behind, but you don't want to put yourself more behind than you have to, because one of the biggest threats to this mid range deck is hyper aggro, and the best way to lose hyper aggro is to just be really slow, and uh, coins are definitely not fast. Mm-hmm. That's, that's for sure. That's a very good point, Patrick. Thank you. I think I'll, that's going to change my evaluation of coins in the future. All right. So now uh, pick five, uh, cards in contention. Um, fitting with your Cloud Snake Matriarch, there is a Yeti Instigator. There are no fire cards. And then there's the really the only, the best card in the pack is Retribution. Yeah, for sure. And we just get to take the Retribution. We only have one green card right now it does i would take the retribution if, even if i had zero green cards right um, the uh other thing i'd like to call it is red is cut in this pack like you say and how much do you think we care that red is cut we just don't care it it doesn't matter what colors are there or not it doesn't matter like whether something's open you just take the best card and you'll be able to play all the cards you take mm-hmm. now there is some it is good to note that, that red is not super open here. Maybe red will be a splash. Maybe we value fixing for red differently than we would other colors. 
maybe we value double red cards a little lower if we think red is cut because we're going to want it to be a splash. So there is some skill there that you still get to use your tools of identifying uh, what colors there or not. But just because red is cut here doesn't mean we're going to like put this heretics cannon and streets of flame into our pool. We're still playing that card. We're still playing all those cards. It's just going to be the extent to which we play more red cards. And that kind of naturally flows from the color being cut. Pick six. Uh, cards in contention. There is a Corrupted Behemoth, a Razor Quill, a Steadfast Paladin, and a Flash Grenade. I think it's not too uh, hard to predict what I'm going to pick here because Corrupted Behemoth is close to my favorite card in the set. We're just going to take the Corrupted Behemoth. Mm-hmm. Um, I think Razor Quill is the closest... We're not going to take a two-drop for reasons previously mentioned. Steadfast Paladin is worse than a Stranger, for sure. And Flash Grenade is fine, but we would rather have strong, like, stabilization plays. And then uh, this is pick seven. Cards of Contention. There is a Blurry Chaser. There is an Auric Lookout and a Crooked Alley Guide. And I think I actually screwed this pick up because I took Blurry Chaser. Blurry Chaser is a very strong card, top 10 card from... Set 6.0, but I think I actually should have taken the, the Crooked Alley Guide here because, and this is part of my Set 6.0 experience working against me. In 6.0, you had too many three drops and no two drops. Glory Chaser was very valuable then. Now it's a lot less valuable, so I would just take Crooked Alley Guide here. That, that's a play on three, play on one, easy influence. It would be our first shadow card, but I think the power level is there for it to be good. So I think I would just take it. Uh, I think I think I, I messed this pick up. What do you think, Patrick? Yeah, I, I maybe am not quite as down as on this pick as you said. Like you mentioned above when we we're talking about this strategy, you know, Blurry Chaser is one of those funny cards that it's a two-drop but can also not be a two-drop because you're perfectly happy playing Blurry Chaser on three and just giving getting, you know, doing the immediate scout. And then it also has another scout or two left in you know, left in the bag to do later if you need to dig for your final influence color or need to dig for your win con or stabilization play. So I think it is defensible, you know, and I think it's really close. I kind of see your argument about how Alley Guide is a better three-drop play than Blurry Chaser in the sense that you get a 3-3, you still get the scout, and you get to play it on one, which gives you an early play. So I think they're I think they're very close. I think if this were any other any other two drop, like if that was a devotee of the sands or a displaced arachidon or something like that, I don't think it would be very close. Yeah. Another thing to consider here is that both of these cards have scout. Scout is a form of fixing because you can either uh, scout cards you can't play to the bottom, or you can scout power that doesn't help you to the bottom, or you can help. It also like directly helps you find the power that you need to catch the spells that you have, or the other way around. So scout is kind of semi-fixing, I would say. And that both of these cards have scout; they're both good. So to close out this pack, we get another Torrid test pilot, and then some random bad cards that always seem to pop up at the end of packs in set six for Dark Frontier packs. And so we're ending this pack with. Three fire cards, two justice cards, our cloud snake matriarch as our double primal card and a time card. And how are you feeling uh, entering pack two here? This is great. We have uh, eight 
very high quality cards. I think all these cards are well above average. We only have one double color card. Uh, it's our only card in primal, but that's common. I, I would still be, I would still consider primal to be in play here. Uh, and I wouldn't be cutting it to the sideboard or anything just because it's my only card and it's a double color. It just means I need more fixing of that color, whether or not I get more cards of it if I want to play it. So I, I'm liking where we are now. You're not going to get 12 playables out of a pack. You get eight. That's that's doing great. Yeah. All right. So now going into pack two, pick one, cards in contention. Our rare is a Xenon Obelisk. There's also a Feeding Time and some fixing in the form of a Huru Banner, an Argentport Stranger, and a Barrel Throw. So what did you take here? This is, pack is interesting because I would take either Xenonobelisk or Feeding Time over the fixing, but I think Xenonobelisk is just clearly one of the best cards that's ever, that's ever been printed for, for uh, draft. So we're going to take that and be very happy. We don't currently have any Shadow cards, but I would certainly take Feeding Time is my first shadow card. It's not really a big deal to be playing five cards, five colors rather than four. It's actually kind of an advantage to have all five colors. So if, if we take Xenon Obelisk and Feeding Time out of uh, the pack, so say our options are the Huru Banner, the Argentport Stranger, or the Barrel Throw. Which of those three do you There's think also, you would take? This is actually a pretty good pack. We have a Dark Return and a Lightning Strike as well. Yeah. Like, Lightning Strike is removal. That's pretty good. So currently, the Argentport Stranger is weakened a little bit because we have no purple cards, mm -hmm. we have no shadow cards currently. So I would rate that just a little bit lower. And I think I would probably take Barrel Through over it because, it, like the Stranger, it is a fixing spell that it takes up uh, not power slots in your deck. Right. So you can, you can be playing a, a, a really good combat trick. Barrel Through is a really good combat trick. Plus three plus three for two power, uh, and you get some incidental fixing out of it. And incidental fixing is wonderful when you're looking for just fixing of, of any color. And we're in all three of those colors right now. So I would take I would take barrel through over stranger or banner. I don't know whether I I think I probably would still take them over lightning strike and dark return, uh, but I think it would take maybe lightning strike over dark return because like we talked about before, we're likely to be on the defensive. Okay, so now pack two, pick two cards in contention. There is a Burn Them All, which is the five firefighter primal uh, fast spell, deal five dam damage to an enemy, amplify three, deal five damage to an additional enemy. And uh, important point is you cannot pick the same enemy for the amplify. It is an additional enemy. Cannot go do 10 to the face. There is also a display of vision and some fixing. Yeah, I think display of vision is probably the, it's hard to argue that it's not the worst display. It's a, uh, one of the modes is fixing and you have to have three colors to cast it. So that's a little problematic. So I think burn them all is, it's close to a bomb. Mm -hmm. uh, five damage for five that goes to the face. It kills basically everything that you care about killing. So I, I think it's pretty easy to take that card now. It is double fire, but I would still take it. I haven't looked in a long time, but for a, a long time, it was in the top five rares in our spreadsheet in set five. So yeah, it is. Set five, it was very strong. Okay, so now pack pack two, pick three, cards of contention. There is an emerald ring, a cliff diver mantisaur, 
which is the five primal primal four three flying aegis pledge there is the skycrag banner and a xenon stranger this is a, this is a really interesting pick because we still don't have much fixing we i think we don't have any fixing currently so i'm looking at that cliff diver mantisaur and that's compares quite well to a card like aerial ace for example mm-hmm. where it just has two more abilities I think that's close to a bomb creature because it kills our opponent quite quickly. It has ages, so they need two removal spells to kill it. It's up against a stranger, but it's a it's a shadow stranger. Just like in the previous pack, there was a shadow stranger. Uh, so I think because we don't have any shadow currently, I would take the Cliff Diver Mantisaur over the fixing currently. But the more times I do this, the more times I take something over fixing, the more I have to prioritize fixing in the future. Okay, so two quick hypotheticals here. So if there was a Skycrag Stranger in this pack, does the pick get harder? Oh, definitely, yes. So we, we need fixing. Like it's, it's not mandatory that uh, we have yet another large flying creature. Uh, but Cliffhanger Mantisaur, as the flying creature, is, is one of the better flyers. It has Pledge, <laughs> so it's kind of fixing as well for other double primal cards. Yeah, in your opening hand. So I think I would probably still take the Mantisar, but I felt uh, more correct in taking it over the half-on Stranger or full-on Skycrate banner that we have in this pack. So now pack two, pick four, cards of contention. There is the Fountain Stranger. There is the Token of Instinct, which is Firetime Primal. There's a Wormstone and a Lethri Intimidator. So what did you take here? I think this is a really interesting pick. So we're again seeing a Shadow Stranger, which doesn't necessarily help us. But you might think that that's uh, unlucky in some respect. We haven't seen a a double on color Stranger yet. But even when you're playing four colors, you can only use 60% of the Strangers. (laughs) Like that's that's much much lower number than people would expect. When you play three colors, there's only uh, 30% of the Strangers that you want. So... The more colors you play, the more you can take strangers like this. But I think, again, it's not the stranger. We don't have any purple cards. But I think most people would look at, like, Token and Wormstone. If you look at our curve, we have two four-drops uh, and a Xenonobelisk. We have two five-drops and a Burn-Them-All, and we have two six-drops. So do we need a Wormstone to top our curve out? I think that's probably not. That doesn't rise to the level of a card that we would really want to take. But I think this is a perfect time to be restrained take the token, and be happy that, that we didn't have to pass a, a really good card for our deck. And then pack two, pick five. Uh, oh. Once again, there are two options for fixing. There is a barrel throw, and then a Xenon Stranger. Yeah, I, this is one of the packs that made me really like barrel through. Barrel through just does everything you want to do. It doesn't take up a two-drop creature slot. It fixes you. It, it stabilizes you on defense it pushes through on offense it's just it checks all the boxes except developing it's not great in developing but that's why we're playing a whole bunch of two twos for two and the one nice thing about uh this is i didn't mention them yet but you know like the cards that you're you're missing out on here there is the banished umbrain which is the three shadow two three there is the Breath Stalker, which is the Five Shadow Five Three. There's a Scheme. There's Entangling Vines, which is pretty good. But you know, there's 
you're not actually missing out on a, a lot of great cards. And so like this strategy, one of the advantages, especially in packs like this, is, you know, Barrel Through and Zine and Stranger, you know, like a stranger are great cards for your strategy. And you're not actually missing out on any power. Now, I think this pack like a really good example of uh, how you should prioritize fixing over bombs because we just opened a bunch of bombs and we took them. But in, in the next pack, we because we exit this pack with only a couple fixers, we do strongly prioritize those fixers over even very good cards, and we end up in pretty good shape. But so it is really nice that we do get some fixing out of these later picks. But you do typically have to spend like a second pick, a fifth pick on strangers to get to your fixing level. And that is a cost. Mm -hmm. That's that's something that you should do and need to do as part of playing this strategy. The next pack you, or the next pick, you get a double on color stranger in the Praxis Stranger. And so you're exiting pack two with, you have two two drops right now. One of them is that Praxis Stranger we mentioned. The other is the Blurry Chaser that we got from pack one. Um, so we need a few more early drops. Um, we saw a lot of good cards. So the the card quality of this deck is pretty high right now, but we're still a little light on fixing with just the one barrel through, the one on color stranger. And the to triple on token. I, I completely agree. And that's why we're gonna prioritize fixing in this third pack. So pack three, pick one, cards in contention. There's the Imperial Loyalist, which is the four justice four three with pledge and then renown. When you play a spell or weapon on it, uh, you get to, I think, play a card, a unit from your deck with the same power as that spell. That cost or less even, yeah. And it does put it into play. So yes. like, in addition to searching out of your deck, it casts it for free. There's an Oni, Oni Quartermaster, there is a Trailmaker, there is an Off-Color Banner, there is a Be Gone, and then we have another Token of Instinct. So I think this pack comes down to the Imperial Loyalist, which is a high power level card, versus Trailmaker. And I think this is where you have to be restrained and take the Trailmaker. Uh, I thought about this pick for a while in the actual draft, and, you know, Imperial Loyalist, like the power level is very high, but in the end, it's kind of a just kind of a not very good blocker. It's a it's a kind of a below. Well, I don't know. I wouldn't say it's below curve, but it's a, it's a four three for four. It has a little bit of fixing, but it requires you to play weapons on it. It requires you to buff it to get the full value. And Trailmaker is just going to do its job every time. Trailmaker, in addition to fixing us, is going to ramp us into these fours, fives, and sixes that we've been taking. It's really like the perfect card for this deck. And this is the time to be restrained instead of greedy and taking the powerful rare. If, if we had more, if we had been less lucky in the last pack and opened up a bunch of fixing but no bonds, then we would be taking the Imperial Loyalist here and be very happy. Super dynamic what you choose to take. And I think this is close, but it should be the trail movement. Okay, and so this is now going to be the final pick that we review for this draft, but this is pack three, pick two. The cards of contention, there's a Cloud Snake Harrier, which is the three primal primal, three three flying creature that 
gives you plus one spell damage. There's a Magma Javelin, and uh, there is the Token of Vision, which is the Time Justice Shadow, so two of the colors that you have. So what did you take in this pack? Yeah, there's also like a Cosa Recruit, which is kind of a curve filler and fixing. I, I took the Cloud Snake Carrier out of this pack, because three if you fly up to three is extremely powerful, and the fixing is on the low end. Uh, but then in future packs, the fixing is a little better, and the good cards are a little worse. So again, you just have to kind of prioritize that fixing as you go through the pack. So at the end of this, I ended up with four strangers and a trail maker for two drops, along with a glory chaser and a Svetius faithful. Uh, like we said before, all of those creatures are not really, they're either very good two drops or they're not really two drops. I have a Avrax familiar to help accelerate me into the late game and then just a bunch of flyers uh, at the top end. And then three retributions. Like, I guess justice was open and I got some retributions. Training ground to help fill out the curve a little bit earlier. A seek power. Two heretics cannons and an obelisk. Like, the top end is like, top end is that this deck is insane. So it's just about like living to get there and mm -hmm. making sure you have the fixing to make it work. We do have two fixing power as well. So I think this deck was slightly lower on the fixing and slightly higher on the bombs than I would like normally, but it did only have double color cards in Fire and Primal, not in Time and Justice. So it was a little easier to play than mm -hmm. something that was ultra greedy that might have double influence in more of the colors. Right. And as you mentioned, you know, um, you have the four strangers and those are sort of worth more as fixing. So even though you only have two power cards that fix for double color, you know, you are getting a lot of fixing from other places. Yeah. And I don't, this deck actually doesn't qualify as a deck of any color. Uh, I have eight, seven, uh, six, and six. Uh, so <laughs> it's hard to complete quests with these decks, but you, you have just a bunch of fixing uh, and a bunch of high-quality cards. Uh, and you're not super bad at developing because of all the strangers. All right, so that was great. So uh, I hope people got a lot from from this segment. I think it's kind of interesting. This is one of our first sort of archetype breakdowns for the show. So uh, let us know what you thought, if that helped you, if it, and give it a try and let us know how it goes for you. Or, you know, in the Discord, if you have any questions... We're always available there to answer anything if you have any picks or things you want to ask about. We actually went through several of these drafts in the Discord. Uh, so there's a few examples with uh, other people, not me, uh, making the picks and asking for advice and, and weighing the value of fixing versus uh, powerful cards. So there's a lot of examples in the Discord. Check it out. Yes. All right. So that's the end of our show here. Uh, once again, I'd like to thank our patrons, uh, James and Raven Dragon, for making this show possible. And a reminder to all of our non-patron listeners to give us a five-star rating or review on iTunes, Stitcher, or Google Play. Uh, join us in our Discord. It's been growing week on week, doubling. So we're at over 40, 40 members in the Discord right now. So there's always someone on to answer a question and there's often people asking questions. And, you know, so I really, really recommend it. 
And then finally, give a thumbs up to Raven Dragon, who I want to give a special shout out for taking over the Reddit posting as uh, while we still wait on Barefoot Farmer to come back from his season of hell. And don't forget to send in all your seven deck, seven win deck lists to farmingeternal at gmail.com. And remember to keep on farming. Bye. Bye, everyone. Well done, Patrick. So I need like five minutes to eat my dinner and then I'll, I'll start talking about the questions. Apologies. <laughs> Wait, so you're leaving, leaving? Raven Dragon. Whoa, 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 whoa. Lists. Patamaru with two. I didn't call out anybody who had two lists because I, a lot of these people. Oh, my God. Oh, sure. I sure. could only call out the people who got four lists, but then I'd only be calling out myself. So I'm I'm just being uh, restrained here or, or extremely humble, I would say. Being extremely humble.